Hello, and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today as our guest, we have plant scientist Roman Ramos-Baez, who also goes by Romy. Romy has a BS in plant biology and genetics from UC Berkeley, where they studied hormone signaling and floral development of the banana family. He's a six-year graduate student at the University of Washington Biology Department, and she continues to study hormone signaling using yeast to test the kinetics of the auxin signaling network in maize. Romy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. So to begin with, we normally like to ask our guests, how did you get interested in science? There's like cutesy stories and then there's like real- other more complicated ones. But I think one cutesy one is I was taking like AP bio in, in high school and I, I grew up in the Dominican Republic. So it was already, I was already kind of surrounded by really exciting plants, a lot of rainforests and savannas and, and mountains with pine trees, like every kind of biome imaginable. And I remember just being really fascinated with, with the plant science stuff. And we had, we were studying for the AB bio exam and the, the teacher at the time asks me, like she, she's going through questions and then she stops and she's like, oh, I'm not gonna ask y'all these questions. These are about plants and we don't study plants. Plants are boring. And I had gone through the textbook and read those sections because I just thought they were interesting. And so I told her to ask it anyways. I can't remember what the question was, but the answer was oxen. And I study oxen now and, I, and I'm like fully a plant biologist. So I think it's really funny that my biology teacher thought plants were super boring, even skipped it. And uh, I always kind of was fascinated by it. Why do you find plants so interesting? Oh my gosh. There's, it's just so many things. Okay. If you're a chemist, plants are chemical making machines. They make so many different things we use as drugs, food, <laughs> structures. If you're like a material scientist, they're interesting for their lignin, for their cellulose, for different porosities of like, if you're a geneticist, kind of like I am a little bit, plants are like super rapidly evolving. Like they're really tolerant to their genomes duplicating. So they have a lot of like rapidly evolving gene families. They're also very pretty. They're nice. I feel comfortable poking and prodding at them in lab because they're just plants. So there's a lot of reasons to study plants. I will say as an entomologist, one of my greatest shames is that I don't (laughs) know more about plants because it's such an obvious thing to also know about. I mean, that makes sense, right? It's like they co-evolve so much, right? Well, and it's also like, I think the example that people bring up, I don't know, something about the major radiation in beetles was because Mm -hmm. of the evolution of flowering plants or something. (laughs) I'm not a beetles guy, so I don't, you know, don't, (laughs) nobody fact check me. I took one course in botanical systematics during my master's, and that's where 99% (laughs) of what I know about plants There's always time to learn. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not dead yet. Well, so you referenced it a little bit, but can you tell us more about what you're working on now? So right now, I have a project where I'm studying um, the oxygen signaling pathway. So I guess there's so many little things to explain because I'm studying maize, but I'm using yeast to study maize. But then I'm studying like this hormone pathway in plants that people probably don't know about. So where do I start? Signaling pathway. It's basically if let's say a a hormone walks into your cell and it's telling you to do something. The way that cells do stuff is that they uh, change the kind of genes they're expressing. And so signaling pathway is basically a group of proteins that work inside of a sort of a pathway to turn that like 
molecule coming into the cell into, okay, well, this is a receptor protein, tells this other protein to tell another protein, um, so on and so forth, to tell a transcription factor to like turn something on or turn something off. And so in the case of um, oxygen signaling pathway, there's three, three steps. Another question, which is probably a very basic one, but interesting nevertheless, of what makes something specifically a hormone? Like what is a hormone structurally and what defines it as a category? It's a chemical signal that helps cells communicate with each other across long distances. So hormones like oxen, which are like tryptophan derived. Sort of a sidestep, tryptophan is probably familiar to a lot of people as the thing in Turkey that makes you sleepy. So what what does it do? What does it mean in plants then? Because I think maybe another interesting idea is that there are a lot of things in plants and in plant biology that ostensibly are familiar to people, but that they only know about in the context of animals like hormones. Yeah, well, the, the major difference between plants, and there's actually not that much that's different when you get down to like the cellular level. As an organism, the cells can't move past each other. You know, they can't run uh, up and down like blood cells do or slide past each other, kind of like your your immune cells, like looking between cells for bacteria or, or whatever. Because they're stuck in place in this little grid of cellulose, which is their, their cell walls, they kind of have to just put out signals chemical signals, and that's how they end up communicating. So they'll, oxen, for example, which is the hormone that I study, it gets produced up in the chute, and it goes all the way down to the roots. And it does that through the vascular tissue. Uh, a, a big different way of thinking about plants is not just their fractal nature, but also the fact that the cells are kind of stuck next to each other. That's actually genuinely something that I had never considered. But in retrospect, does seem really distinct and obvious and important yeah yeah and plants are also stuck in the ground right so like they can't run away from i mean i guess um pollen goes really long distances but like a, a a single organism plant you know it has to be responding to the environment constantly and so that's another thing hormones do is it'll tell the plant okay well the sun's shining like y'all better turn on those uh, turn on those chloroplasts real quick, or maybe it's shining too bright. Let's move those chloroplasts away. And they do, they like actually like shift the location of the chloroplast so the cell does, doesn't get burned or open their stomata to, to like release different gases or, or water. And stomata are like openings in the cell wall, right? Yeah, mm, they're, they're groups of cells that open little pores in the leaves usually. Um, think of them as like your pores on your skin. Yeah, yeah, multicellular plants. Yeah, I guess I'll give you one more thing about plant development that's different from animal development. And it's that and it's important to how oxen works, right? With a plant, um, there isn't like a determinate amount of leaves or stems or other organs that you kind of end up having throughout your life, right? But with animals, there is, you know, your your embryo kind of already has in it all your little fingers and with little fingernails and all your little, your one stomach. Um, that you get <laughs> such losers <laughs> one stomach just one Ugh. stomach Pla- i mean plants don't have any stomach so i guess they're the losers right that means that plants have a lot more like morphological diversity with with really tiny tweaks to like that hormone signaling for example and that's kind of what oxen does oxen is that like hormone that is involved in pretty much every growth and developmental process that plants go through through whether it's like detecting the direction of gravity 
detecting the direction of light and the intensity and, uh, of light. Uh, they, it helps to determine how many stems and, and roots how many times they the roots branch, the shape of leaves, whether they have lots of lobes or not, flower formation. So they it really is involved in so, so many things. And yet when we go all the way down to this, like the signaling pathway, there's just three components that, I mean, they've duplicated massively and those families have expanded, but there's there's the receptor, there's the transcription factor, and then there's the, we'll call it the co-receptor in the middle. The receptor... In this case, the receptor and the co-receptor, you can imagine them as being two different classes of, of, of proteins. And I mean, imagine, so a receptor is what you would think. So let's imagine like a little, like a golf ball is in your hand. Like the golf ball is the oxen and the hand that like can detect that the golf ball is like, has a little golf ball shaped hole in it. Um, that's the receptor. Um, but the way that oxen works is the receptor also uh, requires another component to kind of sandwich together the golf ball. So you're putting both of your hands together. Just to, I just, this just occurred to me. Would a mi- better metaphor maybe be a baseball mitt and a baseball? Oh my gosh. That is the one that I was like, what is the ball that they use usually? <laughs> what sport is it that they usually, yeah, that's exactly it. Because uh, then the baseball mitt specifically is made, like you can't catch like a soccer yes. ball in the baseball mitt. Probably. That is a much better analogy. I've because- never baseball mid in my life <laughs> i'm also dominican i should know about baseball but <laughs> i'll start there then the way that the receptor works is it's like a baseball mitt and um it only can catch baseballs which is the oxen but it's different from that in that you need kind of a second hand to come in to like really sandwich that um, baseball for the whole system to work and, and to, to signal to transcription factors to to, to turn on genes and turn off genes. So it's more like the auxin is a glue that's sticking together this receptor and this co-receptor. And so when that gluing happens, that co-receptor gets degraded. Usually that co-receptor is stuck to the transcription factors and is turning them off. But when it gets degraded, it releases the transcription factors and allows those genes that they that those transcription factors are bound to to turn on. Did we define transcription factor? Yes, no. <laughs> a transcription factor is a protein that instead of that it sticks to dna uh, at promoter regions uh a promoter region is the <laughs> I'm so telling. many things to know i know it's it's We're gonna so... have to break out the diagrams eventually <laughs> <laughs> it's the part of the gene it's the part of the gene upstream of the gene that that tells the gene to, whether it should be turned on or off. So auxin binds the receptor and the co-receptor together. Transcription factors get turned on or off because of that, basically. <laughs> so it's a method of controlling the expression of different genes. Yeah, that's exactly right. I do actually have a side question about plant development now. Go ahead. Because there are plants that kind of just grow indefinitely, right? But there are also shoots up, blooms once, and then never blooms again. So what's that about? Yeah, so plants, it's really interesting. Flowers are so beautiful, right? Like so many of our foods come from flowers. Um, but something, and a lot of our foods are annuals. So like they'll they'll bloom and then they die. They die off. There's nothing you can really do to keep them alive. Um, and that has a little bit to do with oxen, I guess. So the way that 
I, we talked about um, plants kind of like making leaves indefinitely. The, it all starts at the apical meristem. The apical meristem being a group of stem cells at the tippy top of the tallest branch of a plant. And so that meristem has all these stem cells in it. And when you start making flowers, the stem cells stop being stem cells and they end up differentiating. And so for some plants, you can have a certain stem, have that apical meristem transition into a floral meristem, and it's fine because at at every leaf, there's other secondary meristems that can continue to make uh, more and more branches and leaves. But there are certain plants, like sometimes you'll have a certain succulent kind of put out pups, and that is a, a branching. I'm sorry, did you say pups? Pups, yeah, that's what the... That's what the... Like little plant puppies yeah like little you know little babies <laughs> they sound so cute <laughs> they are cute and i'm always um going around in people's neighborhoods and stealing their little succulent pups and <laughs> that's valid starting my own uh collection and oxen is basically what tells a plant whether all those uh, meristems which are at every single leaf node should be uh branching out you can imagine that if a plant was branching out at every single opportunity, at every single leaf, it would kind of get out of control really quickly. You know how I said that oxen starts being made at the at the tippy top, at the meristem? So that signal goes down the stem, and as it goes down the stem, it gets weaker and weaker. And if you were to chop off the top of, the, of certain plants, that signal goes away. And so that tells all, the, all these meristems all the way down the branch, oh my gosh, like we, we lost our, our, our shoot apical meristem. We're going to die. We need to make, we need to start branching. And so that's kind of a, a cool way that oxen determines like kind of the structure. Of the plant. Is that why for like topiary, if you like clip or trim a bush, it'll come back fuller? Exactly. Yep. And so I guess you could think that that would happen with flowers, right? It's like a way that the sam is, is dying off, but it's a way that it's dying off that maybe the plant is is already genetically determined to be like, okay, this this is flowering that's happening. This isn't like my stem being cut off. This is, it's time to go, you know, if it's an annual. Annual being a plant that only lives for a season. Well, and then is there some genetic signal that determines like, I'm going to be an annual. I'm going to be perennial. <laughs> I'm going to be a tree. Also, this is just a fact that I'm gonna, just going to drop in and we can abandon, but it blew my whole life apart, which is that trees are not, they're not like a clade. It's just a thing that happens a lot. Things just become yeah. tree-like. Yep. Palm trees are actually giant grasses. Yes. Yeah. Being a tree is just a vibe. It's just a vibe. This is because I've been living in this truth for about four years now. So I've accepted it. I've integrated it into my brain, into my life. But whenever people learn this, I think it really throws, they got us, they at least got to sit down. Yeah. Well, being a tree, it comes down to, you know how I said that those stem cells are all the way at the tippy top? Yes. So trees have a whole, they're wrapped in stem cells they have kind of a ring of stem cells all the way all the way around their trunks and these kind of con consistently make wood inwards and consistently make kind of sugar transporting like living cells on the outside as, as, as well as bark which is why sometimes you see someone will kill off a tree by like removing a ring of bark from the outside because really all the inside of a tree 
is dead. It's 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 functional cells that help kind of work as straws, sucking up water and 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 minerals and such. But it's wait, so bark is alive. Bark is well. <laughs> Yes and no. So there's <laughs> layers of bark, and that kind of inner layer is alive. Okay. So is it okay? So is it like bark is kind of like hair? <laughs> yes. And yeah, it's like like there bark. are the follicles, like the follicular cells. I'm a. I don't know how hair works either. <laughs> Listen, I am an entomologist, <laughs> but wherever like is making the hair, that's alive. But then the hair itself is all just sort of, we're just getting it out of there. Yeah, I would describe it more like skin or scales in that it's like, um, in that it's like, they make sclerenchyma cells, sclerenchyma being like the really kind of, really large cell wall kind of cells. That's um, fun. And those kind of dry up over time. The cell basically, it, it stays alive in the middle and makes as much of this like cell wall as possible and then it gets thicker and thicker and the thicker it gets the less kind of nutrients get into it and it just basically shrivels up in the process that turns into the bark tissue eventually plants (laughs) (laughs) this is this is my real takeaway and we're not over yet because all this time i was thinking that i was just out here having a great time dealing with our own terrestrial aliens because insects are so gosh darn weird but in truth the real aliens were everywhere around us all the time to begin with because plants are strange yeah yeah they really are i (laughs) it's funny that you say that because i think of of us kind of being the aliens plants are just the norm they're everywhere they're like most of the (laughs) biomass you're not wrong (laughs) and then we started moving ourselves around and doing embryo stuff i don't know <laughs> I, well i will say that mammals were a mistake that's that's where i'll land insects yeah. are out there having a great time they're doing good work they're at least pollinating or you say that charles but without mammals we would not have cats oh that's true I that's always the just it was all worth it for that but barely <laughs> <laughs> sometimes i look at my cat and i feel so sad that they can't taste sweet they don't have sweet receptors yeah how can they enjoy plants without sleep receptors? And they're carnivores. Oh, it's so sad. <laughs> yeah. They can eat cat grass, you know. Yeah, I guess so. My, so I have two cats. And my first cat was always very good. Never any, like, picky about cat food even. So, like, not trying to eat anything that I was eating. But my second cat, he doesn't want to consume it, but he wants to taste everything. Mm-hmm. And I have to be like, buddy, I'm a vegetarian, first of all, so <laughs> this isn't for you. And then secondly, so much of what I, like, I, you know, I cook, everything has onions and garlic in it. <laughs> That'll kill you, bud. That'll kill you dead. Yep. Same situation here. Plant-based household. Cat will not touch my food. And that's a great thing. <laughs> but it, it, I guess the, sto- the, the, uh, the moral of the story is that even... Even carnivores are interested in plants. They're excited yeah. about plants. They just can't. They're so alluring. <laughs> so auxins, hormones. I haven't even told you about all the yeast. Yeah, well, that's actually... that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're telling me you're studying plants, but you're actually studying yeast, which is yeah. fungus? I you're lying to us the whole time. I lied. I lied. I've only really grown very few plants. 
And the, well, the reason why you can imagine, well, yeast are just so amazing as like a model organism. They're sturdy. You can pipette them up and down. You can centrifuge them at maximum speeds. You can freeze them. They're so tiny. They're single cells. Uh, plants, they can be quite finicky, especially if you're studying kind of like an agriculturally important plant like maize, which is kind of what I was interested in. They take a whole year, they're an annual, they take a whole year to make a cob. And I'm, I'm trying to study kind of like cob formation. You're on a, you're a grad student. You're on a schedule. I'm on a schedule. I've been here for six years. <laughs> <laughs> I love being here actually, but I can, I explain how kind of the oxen signaling pathway is only really three components, um, the receptor, the, the co-receptor and the transcription factor. Turns out you can put those into yeast cells and use the yeast to kind of study those components at the kinetic level. We can't really study how they control like dam or, or root formation within the yeast cells, but we can study, you know, the speed at which they respond to auxin, the, the sensitivity at which they respond to auxin. How do they normally respond? I mean, if they're not growing like roots, presumably, or, you know, Yeah, stems. that's a great question. So we'll take a gene or sorry, a promoter that those oxygen transcription factors would normally bind to and activate. And downstream of it, we, instead of putting a plant whatever gene, we put a fluorescent gene. So ah. when we, yeah, so when we turn on the, when we add oxygen to the, our little yeast cells, it'll start fluorescing brightly with her. And this is, this is um, a technology that's not uncommon in labs, which do some sort of genetic engineering because the fluorescent gene is not, that's not necessarily the object of what you're trying to accomplish, but it's a signal that you have accomplished something, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's an easy way to see the intensity and the speed at which we're getting a signal. And you'd be surprised just how quickly we can see an auxin response. Within minutes, you can see that kind of degradation of that co-receptor happening and within yeah and still within minutes you can see that the gene being expressed it's really exciting and it makes sense that a plant has to react really quickly because again it can't move it needs to change quickly to match its environment to stay alive well i'm about to ask you a wildly speculative question that you would have no way to actually have an answer to (laughs) um so we'll see what happens but so we know that there are like carnivorous plants, right? That are mixotrophs that take in different forms of input for energy sources and that kind of et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. So there are plants that effectively kind of eat meat. So why are there not plants that have evolved little legs <laughs> to move themselves around? Because legs are useless. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> They don't need legs. I mean, plants really do move a lot. It's funny because I keep saying how they don't move and how important that is. But if you really think about it, there's two things that are happening. One, and you can think of this as like where entomology comes in. Um, plants have made it, made themselves attractive to animals in really important steps at different parts of their, their development that kind of allows the animals to do all the work for them. They'll get the bees to move their pollen for them or the wind to move their pollen for them if, if you're like a grass. They get uh, animals like us to move around their fruit and to either toss them out like miles away or, or, or poop them out. <laughs> so they, 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 we have all, they have all these pollinator interactions. They have um, seed dispersal interactions as well. 
So we'll have um, certain plants that stick to your, uh, they have seeds that stick to your hair. They stick to your skin with spikes or other kind of um, mechanisms. So yeah, plants have really figured out, I don't need legs. All these other animals have legs and they can kind of do the work for us. And there are some plants that can kind of, that you can sort of pick up the whole thing and just move it. Like all of the air plants that they sell at craft stores. Yeah. Or not craft stores, at craft festivals. Yeah. Yeah, those air plants. I mean, normally they would be, they're uh, epiphytes, which means that they live on branches. And they kind of grip really hard to those branches. Yeah. and Wait, okay. So by selling all of these air plants at craft festivals and whatever, are we depriving them of their best lives? Like, are <laughs> we, is it a, like a situation where like a lot of people get fish and they're like, oh, you don't actually need to take care of fish, but actually the fish are not having a good time. I think if, if it's a plant and it's in your house, you've already deprived it of its best life. <laughs> I mean, in some ways... Yeah, these are all plants that should be somewhere in like the Amazon rainforest or like down in like Costa Rica. Um, for the most part, we grow like tropical plants that need high humidity, which is like a big reason why they die or they need a lot of light and they just can't get enough light uh, if you're talking about a succulent. So yeah, they're not too happy, but plants are resilient and they usually find a way. Okay, another plant question that's been on my mind for years what is up with bonsai uh-huh i've been really like, fascinated by bonsai recently yeah go it's ahead it's how they just look like small trees <laughs> yeah i mean again plants being really resilient they the way with bonsai is i as, as far as i know i'm, I'm no bonsai um master or i don't know what what you would call bonsai artist i'm sure there's a term but um uh so a lot of plants they grow their roots the 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 structure of roots can be very different right some plants grow really deep roots some plants grow roots that just kind of skim the surface of the soil usually big trees will will make deep roots that kind of keep them stuck to the ground so they can put tons and tons of wood up but um anyways with with bonsai you cut the roots back continuously and you also kind of keep the plants root bound in their pots. And this really stops the plant from being able to hold its, I don't, honestly, I don't know. I really don't know, but I'm thinking I, yeah, that is enough just, to like de- nutrient deprive it and to like tell signal to the plant that it's not tall enough or that it can't get any taller because it, it doesn't have the like the roots to hold it up. Yeah. Yeah. I think what really gets me about bonsai is if you in a movie, you take a human and you make them really small. Yeah. Something always looks wrong about it because you're like, well, I know that the physical, like your organ couldn't be that small and also work. Yeah. All of those shrinking down to go inside of people's bodies. Movies are lying to you. Yeah. Everybody would die. So seeing bonsai that look exactly like big trees, yeah. but they're small. Yeah. It's, I it's don't understand how it works. If I had to g- guess, it might be one of those like weird fractal things where like, you know, plants just follow a pattern at every level of scale and we just don't normally see it at smaller scales because it requires really weird circumstances like, you know, stunting its growth basically. Maybe. Yeah. 
it's a mixture of, of that embryo thing I told you where like it it's number of leaves and stems isn't really determined at birth. So it can just have, it, it looks like it, it's like a regular tree, but it has a lot less stems, a lot less leaves. And usually with bonsai, they pick plants like juniper that already have like microscopic little leaves or, or little pines. It, it, the leaves aren't actually that much smaller. The fruits aren't that much smaller. If you ever, if you've ever seen a bonsai like tree with fruits on it, I've, I think I've seen like a bonsai apple tree once. They'll make a huge, regular looking apple. I'm looking at a picture right now, and it's very humorous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The organs are pretty much the same size. They're just a lot less of them, and they're very compacted. I love all these plant developmental questions because I, I really love plant development. And that's like the the reason why I care about oxen so much. But then at the same time, I really haven't. Most of the work I've done has been in, in yeast. <laughs> so at the, at the molecular level. What is like your optimal outcome for your research? You know, what would you be most excited to find out about oxen and how it relates to plants? Well, that it opens up kind of a different section of what I'm doing, which is herbicides. It turns out a lot of herbicides, some of the oldest herbicides we've been using for selective killing of, they kill only uh, eudicots and not grasses. They all function through the oxen signaling pathway and they bind to the same oxen receptors and they basically mimic oxens or synthetic oxens. I've been trying to learn more about how they, one, how, how they, you know, function as oxens and also how they don't function as oxens. Like what makes it so that they kill plants versus like oxen normally wouldn't do that and at the same time why why are they only selectively killing grasses you know we've been using these for like 80 plus years and we still don't really know why they only seem to be or sorry i keep saying grasses they don't kill grasses that's a good thing most of what we eat is grass corn grains etc i i I really care about the little things i want to learn more about I, i hope my research shines a light into the evolution of the oxen signaling pathway. And hopefully I can use herbicides to shine a light on how these receptors interact so differently in different plants with different small molecules. Yeah, I want to learn a lot more. It's really like a molecular evolution side of things that that interests me. Right now I'm doing um, directed mutagenesis or directed evolution, which allows me to basically pick an amino acid in in the protein of preference, in this case the receptor, and make and switch it with every single possible amino acid in its place instead and see how that affects the function if i can make a stronger receptor or probably most likely a receptor that is weaker in function and i'm doing and i've selected kind of uh, three different amino acids at the binding pocket that i am making every possible combination of and then testing to see what mutations kind of allow for more promiscuous binding of herbicides and auxins which ones allow make more restrictive binding so that maybe we have receptors that only bind to herbicides or only bind to the native true auxin prudish binding you might yes (laughs) promiscuous versus prudish (laughs) binding I don't know why why the industry term is is promiscuous mutations, but that's. I mean, people in animal behavior still refer to like virgin, like in uh, Drosophila studies, it's very very common to hear virgin flies. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to. What would be a better term for a promiscuous mutation? I mean, non-selective. Well, I guess that means something else though. 
Yeah, because what it does is a mutation that not only allows more binding of different things, but it also kind of opens up the protein for evolution. It, it by by changing what it binds to, or by allowing it to change what it's what it's going to bind to in the next casual mutation. maybe as opposed to formal. Ah, <laughs> casual. Uh, un- yes, open. You know, open hearted. Yes, yeah. you know, friendly. Yes. Um, I, it is actually if because I don't think we've really talked about sort of the but like the the molecular evolution of plants yeah and just like how because plants are very weird this is this is what I do know about plants because p- plants will like they often double up their genes yeah. right like they end up with double the number of chromosomes that they used to have mm-hmm. and oftentimes if you were to do that in an animal. They would just, yeah, you would, they would just freak out. And then you do that with with like grains, almost all the plants that we've like domesticated, we double or quadruple the number of chromosomes and it just makes them bigger. (laughs) It just makes bigger, juicier grain. Well, I guess this, it it probably, and this is wild speculation at this point, but I wonder if it's connected to what you said earlier about how they don't have like a definitive, discrete body plan where you're going to grow to have six limbs two wings and that's it and then a lot of the genetic studies with like drosophila for instance they'll introduce mutants where they have two sets of wings or where they have no wings or whatever and you're messing with that deterministic sort of body plan whereas with plants as you said a lot of them just they just keep on going that indeterminate morphology of plants really it's like that's a predominant hypothesis for why plants are so kind of lenient um, with allowing themselves to to kind of evolve and, and mutate quickly, and that ends up being true that plants are just they they evolve very rapidly. They change their their whole genomes very rapidly, and that's kind of what's happened with with the oxen signaling pathway. Just to bring it back to that is, I told you that there's these three components, but there's six in just in Arabidopsis, which is a plant that we study very closely. Uh, it's like one of the most stu- well-studied model organisms in genetics. Um, there's six receptors. And isn't it, it like mustard? Yeah, it's in the, it's in the broccoli mustard family, Brassica rapa, which is like a lot of different um, things, including I think cabbage. That one is actually pretty closely related to Arabidopsis. It, it does have a duplication though. Again, like, like most. <laughs> Um, things we eat they, they're just bigger because they have more more genes in them it's more complicated than that but that's like a, a general rule is there anything about plants that you would like to get on the record before we stop talking about plants or potentially a, a misconception that people have about your field a lot <laughs> I'll give you kind of a funny one. And this happens even when I go on dates. People always ask me about their houseplants and how to take care of their houseplant. The misconception is that plant people are good at taking care of plants. <laughs> no. Like, I know, I can tell you so much about plants at the molecular level, at the genetic level. I don't know how many times you're supposed to water your plants. Yeah. I don't know what kind of plant that is. I'm not a botanist. I, I know it's pretty and I wish you so much luck. this feels a little bit like meeting a linguistics major and asking them how many languages they speak (laughs) one (laughs) 
you know because you're not a language student you're a linguistics student you're not learning how to speak languages you're learning how to analyze them for yeah. patterns yeah i i i'm a geneticist i'm a molecular biologist i'm an evolutionary biologist and my model organism happens to be plants that's how i see it and god bless them So the final thing we do in every episode is we ask our guests to weigh in on one of our recurring questions. Is there one or more that you would particularly like to answer? I love the robot one. If I could put my brain in a robot. So, okay. So that one is you're about to die. Like, you know that you, you, you know, your body is terminal status, but your brain is fine. And you have the option to transplant your brain into a robot body. Do you take it? Okay, probably no. But if I'm going to say yes, I think I've been an agent of chaos in many ways with my drag shows and things like that. And I would love to continue to be that. And so I would love to be put into a Furby and terrorize people. (laughs) Like, I don't need to me. I like the way you think. (laughs) I don't need to walk around. I don't need to, you know, do science. I just need to like wake up in the middle of the night and start making Furby noises or (laughs) my only Furby story is that of course I had a Furby, obviously. Yes. My child of the nineties, I had a Furby and you could get it to call you daddy or mommy. (laughs) And my Furby resolutely would only call me daddy. And I was like, I'm not a, daddy you furby <laughs> but now i'm trans and that's furbies did that <laughs> i was gonna be straight i was gonna be cis and then i got a furby <laughs> that furby said trans rights and we love that <laughs> yeah, yeah furbies are interesting have you seen um the long furbies that people make oh my gosh you mean like the high- they stick together the old school furbies into like a yeah, it's like um, a Furby centipede, yeah. Yes, centipede, yes, that. Well, I only say not, because caterpillars only technically have three sets of legs, and then they have pro legs on their abdomen. That's very interesting. <laughs> Getting back to sort of a deterministic body plan, insects, you know, even as larvae, they still have all the same body segments. It's just that they look different. So if you look at a caterpillar, you can see that it has three sets of, like, segmented legs up front, and then it has the squishy things down back, but those are extensions of its abdomen, and they're called prolegs, and they mm-hmm. got little claws so that they can climb on stuff. Wow. I'd be really surprised if, like, millipedes always have the same number of, of legs or centipedes, just because... Do you, do you mean all species in the group or all individuals in a species? All individuals in a species, just because you, you got to either... I don't know. What's the fun of that? What's the fun in that? <laughs> You gotta gotta throw in a little bit of morphological plasticity, just for fun. Variety is a spice of life, after all. Spoken like a true plant scientist, (laughs) with all of their vegetated morphological complexities. This one has 17 leaves. This one has two. They're the same. (laughs) That's what, that's, that was my main take. Well, it wasn't my main takeaway. That was one of the big takeaways of the botany course that i took where it was like the leaves can look like this they can also not it was like well what good is this how dare you do this to me an entomologist (laughs) we love that so we've had a lot of people have answered the robot question because so we have kind of two outgrowth questions of it as well 
One is, does your new robot Furby brain life count? Is it functionally immortality? Mm-hmm. No. I mean, we've all had a Furby, right? What does it <laughs> last, like a month? Yeah. I think I don't I don't need to be alive too long. It's okay. I I, I almost said no to begin with. Like, let's yeah. say yes. Let's terrorize some kids. They throw me in yeah. the fireplace. It's so okay. this is kind of a grand last stand of I'm going out, but I'm not going to go out without ruining people's lives. <laughs> well, the parents will laugh. But yes. <laughs> you could combine everything that you do together and do a Sciacom drag Furby robot brain performance. If you know the greatest piece of science outreach ever done. <laughs> if you knew all the ideas I have. Oh my god. <laughs> no time, no time. Well, I say anybody out there who's listening who is a you know, an engineer a robot scientist, um, some weirdo with a lot of gadgets. You you got to get on this. We can't <laughs> let this not happen. Yeah, please. Romy, you've been a fantastic guest. It's been great having you on. Yay. I'm so, so happy to meet y'all. So fun to do this. And to finally get to talk science. Ah, so fun. Plants are the best. Yeah, well, you've been a fantastic guest. If you ever want to come back to talk about plants or Star Trek or when they talk about plants in Star Trek, because there's probably a lot there. Do you like Star Trek? It's like Drag Race, right? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I don't know if it's um, growing in the Dominican Republic or what, but I just I didn't really watch it. I I had we had um, Nickelodeon in Spanish. We had Cartoon Network. And we had MTV. Um, well, Star Trek isn't on any of those. <laughs> I will say there is a botanist who's a recurring character into the series. Mm. I would. I, I think I would love Star Trek. I just don't watch TV now. Now that I'm in the U.S. and I and I, except for Drag Race. Okay. Well, I'll find some episode that talks a lot about plants, and then we can bring you back on to talk about plants in space. Happily. <laughs> Okay, well, Romy, if people want to find out more about you or the work that you do, where should they look? Yes, you can find me at Sensitive Roots on all social medias, except TikTok. And you can find me just at my website, rramosbyes. Fantastic. I am on Twitter at Cockroach Arles and Tessa. I am on Twitter at SpacerMace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. And I also have a website, TessaFisher.com. The show is on Twitter at ASABpod or at our po- uh, website where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode, ASABpodcast.com. And if you like the show, please tell people about it because that's supposedly the number one way that podcasts grow. And until next time, keep on sciencing.